Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm your host. I'm the executive director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. I am very excited to be coming to you today from Rayburn House Office Building uh, with one of our nation's probably foremost coastal champions and certainly one of our best coastal members of Congress, uh, Congressman Garrett Graves, who represents the Louisiana 6th District, which uh, includes areas around Baton Rouge and areas of uh, near Lake Moripaw and West Pontchartrain and the west part of Lake Pontchartrain and really following the Atchafalaya down to Terrebonne Basin. So very much a coastal district. And we'll get a little bit into Congressman Graves' background uh, and his, his coastal cred. Um, but before we begin, I wanna just take a moment to thank some of our sponsors who help us uh, keep the lights on here at uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Our first coastal sponsor is Doom Doctors, doomdoctors.com. Uh, Frederic Burissette runs a, a terrific firm out of Florida and they help uh, communities and, and landowners restore native dunes, um, restore their dunes, restore native plants and help protect the shoreline. Uh, a second engineering, a second firm is LJA Engineering and Bill Worsham's group out of Texas. They do uh, coastal restoration, coastal engineering all across the Gulf Coast um, and, and a ton of work in Texas. They do really great work uh, restoring coastal systems and, and putting, putting beaches in front of communities that should have beaches there. And then finally, uh, coastal engineering consultants. These guys are based in Florida. This is Michael Poss group. Um, and this one actually, Congressman might, might have a little resonance to you. They were the lead uh, co uh, uh, contractors on the Kamenata Headlands project. So. Um, did a really good job there. Uh, Coming out of Evans actually got uh, ASBPA's 2019 Best Restored Beach Award. So really good project. They work all across the Gulf Coast and outside the Gulf Coast. Um, and they, they have the great, the great website, coastalengineering.com. So one of, the, one of the largest restoration projects in American history. Big project. Millions and millions of cubic yards. Yeah, we, I talked to uh, Renee Orr with Boehm a couple weeks ago. It was, uh, they got sand from out the Armour Continental Shelf. And I think we decided it was something like the size of 10 Empire State Buildings wow. worth of sand. Wow. So really cool project. Okay, well, let's dive in. Uh, again, Congressman Grace, thank you so much for joining us today. You've had a, a tremendous, tremendous experience working on the coast from, from being a, the chair of the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority to member of Congress, uh, chair of the Subcommittee on the Water Resources and Environment Subcommittee of T&I. Um, you know, a lot of background, want to really get into that. But first, uh, Hurricane Barry, just hit your district. It sounds like it probably wasn't as bad as it could have been. But any 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 news or any word from how your how your district handled Hurricane Barry and some of the potential and, and actual flooding that, that was happening? Well, at first we, we did have some levee overtopping, no levee breaches or failures. Uh, we certainly had some homes flood, but the, but the good news is that it was not anywhere close to the projections that that some had noted in regard to surge, wind speeds, rainfall, and river levels. And so uh, at the end of the day, I think that compared to expectations, it was substantially lower. But of course, anytime you have homes or businesses flood, it, uh, it is a disaster for those folks. And so we, um, we're continuing to work with those, but it was not as widespread as we we had once uh, been warned, so good, good news, I think, at, at the end of the day. Well, certainly Louisiana always needs good news when it comes to hurricanes. You've been hit by a number. Um, okay, well, uh, let's, let's dive in. Uh, you know, you've made a career of, of setting and implementing coastal policy. We're going to get into that, but 
take me take me back a little bit. What what got you into this? You're I believe you're from Baton Rouge area, but how did you get into how did you get into the coast? Uh, it's a it's a good question, and I'm embarrassed to tell you that growing up in Baton Rouge, I did not realize what how bad our coastal crisis was in Louisiana. And it took me coming up and working uh, first an internship uh, for Senator John Bro uh, from Louisiana, and then working for Congressman Billy Tozzi and another uh, coastal member from Louisiana to really understand what was going on, the land loss, and and really that that transition. And I think that this is a transition a lot of people went through where where this was first believed to be a, a birds and trees problem, an environmental problem, a habitat problem, and did not understand the connection between what was happening in coastal Louisiana and absolutely everything else, meaning the population, the economy, the culture, the history, uh, the ecological productivity. and. And so um, in working up here, I learned and realized the gravity of the problem, how pervasive it was, and uh, the impact it would have on over 2 million people that live in, in South Louisiana. And of course, really, when you look at it, uh, folks all over all 50 states. Yeah, and I and know most of our listeners, being a coastal audience, know a fair amount about the Louisiana coastal uh, issue. But if Louisiana is losing, I think it's still a football field, an hour of, uh, of, of land. Um, one of the most uh, rapidly eroding and, and disappearing land in the world. Just one, one statistic that kind of puts it in perspective. Uh, Louisiana's lost about 2,000 square miles, and if the state of Rhode Island were to lose 2,000 square miles, we'd have 49 stars on the flag today. So it, it's, a, it's a substantial amount of land, and, and really just the impacts have been, have been huge. So we often talk about how terrible it is, but you've been responsible for solving some of these these issues. What what gives you hope for coastal Louisiana? What gives me hope is that um, we, we finally came in and developed a resource-constrained coastal master plan where we integrated all of the different tools, this whole multiple lines of defense strategy that the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation and others have advocated for where you're looking at. How do you use natural systems and complement structural systems to to ultimately make your community sustainable make your make your your, uh, your your coastal systems sustainable and and so i think that we've really done a great job in louisiana uh, improving the integration of those different strategies understanding which tools to use how to use them how to use them in a portfolio i'm excited because it's a resource-constrained plan. It's prioritized based upon excellent sets of data, some of the best data and modeling system integrations in the world. And because of the progress we've been able to make, the progress we've been able to make and miles of levees built and acres of coastal wetlands restored, miles of barrier islands restored, making extraordinary progress that has had really substantial impact on on improving the resiliency of our communities and helping to reverse this trend of ecological degradation. And I'm confident that as we continue to learn more, to learn from our successes and failures, that we can get better at this, that we can get more efficient at this, and that um, ultimately some of the lessons learned in Louisiana can apply to the other 34 coastal states and territories and really every coastal nation around the world in Louisiana, we, we, we bill our problem at, at somewhere around probably $70 billion. But when you start looking at this issue around the world, you're talking trillions of dollars in adaptation. And Louisiana, because of our subsidence, we're, we're really sort of the laboratory for a lot of these things that are being done. Yeah, absolutely. And I know the Netherlands is often 
gone out to the world to export their their intelligence on on um, levees and water management. But I think I think Louisiana is probably the you know the next frontier, right? You guys are going to be going out to the rest of the world and exporting your your knowledge and and wisdom on dealing with water. Yeah, Deltares and Waterstat and other organizations in in the Netherlands have a lot of expertise on the flood protection and water management side, but they've actually come to Louisiana to learn from us on the ecological sustainability side. So I think we have a lot to learn from one another. Absolutely, and, and some of the universities in this country are really doing some great work, and, and certainly um, the Water Institute in the Gulf, LSU, LUMCOM, and you can go on and on about all the great research that's being done in Louisiana. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's sort of turn that into uh, a little bit about your background as uh, chair of the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority. You had the opportunity to lead some of this planning effort, lead some of the implementation of the uh, protection and restoration of the coast following Katrina, following the oil spill. What did you see as some of the federal roadblocks? What did you see as some of the challenges to being more efficient in, in protecting and restoring the coast? And, and, and from there, you can, if you want, you can just sort of dive into what you're doing now as a member of Congress to eliminate some of those roadblocks. Sure, sure. So, so I, I grew up doing land surveying work and have worked with the Corps of Engineers uh, to some degree since my teenage years and, and have had a lot of experience. And, and what we've seen as we've moved forward on these these large-scale restoration efforts is we've seen that in many cases environmental laws and regulatory processes have actually impeded our ability to move forward rather than uh, complemented. And I think that a lot of this goes back to the fact that um, the regulatory processes were often established for the purpose of building roads and structural protection and things like that and didn't really contemplate projects that were designed for ecological restoration to actually benefit the environment. And so uh, secondly, we, we, we used to have a saying behind the Corps' back where we used to say often that they may be slow, but at least they're expensive. And, <laughs> and, and now we're, we're a little bit more um, forthright about that. We, we, we say it uh, actually to their face, and I think a lot of them acknowledge it. The core has just, they, they sort of became this, this obstacle rather than a partner. And it was really baffling to me because it seemed like we we're working together on protection and restoration and flood control. And I never understood why they were, they were impeding us. But I will say in the last few years, I think we've begun to see this change in, in culture where, where they're actually looking how to get to yes, staying focused on project objectives rather than um, getting stuck on every step of, that the manual says you have to follow. Um, and, but up here, just a couple of quick examples. Number one, we recently had a scenario whereby uh, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which I understand is, is the National Marine Fisheries Service, but it was obstructing our efforts to, to build a river reconnection project. The entire objective was environmental, and they were telling us that we had to do a four-year analysis under Marine Mammal Protection Act, and they were going to say no. We've had scenarios where land ownership of some of our restoration projects um, or some of the mitigation, mitigating for wetlands restoration projects, think about that for just a minute, um, how those things have impeded us. So we have stepped in repeatedly and made changes to the law that have uh, helped to cut through some of that red tape, but we still have a long way to go. And I just think that we've got to think about this from the perspective of these projects or environmental restoration projects that are not uh, designed to go pour concrete all over the coast. Yeah, I, great. And the Marine Mammal Protection Act, that, that one always fascinates me. I mean, my understanding is it was a, a uh, the Veritaria Basin 
dolphin population that was going to be impacted because we're trying to restore wetlands in areas that had historically been wetlands, but because of because of land loss, it had become open water and a dolphin population moved in. So you're really sort of trying to go back to the most natural system possible, but because because it was open water, dolphins had moved in. So It, it, was, it was really amazing. You know, the, the same sort of uh, concept, uh, we had uh, the essential fish habitat by the National Marine Fisheries Service where they were telling us that where land eroded, it became open water, therefore it was essential fish habitat. So whenever we wanted to come back the next year or 10 years later and restore it, we were taking away essential fish habitats, so we had to mitigate for the fish. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, did the fish mitigate for the humans when the land eroded? And, and of course, um, it just simply doesn't make sense. So it all culminated whenever I, I proposed an amendment to have Cajuns deemed a endangered species, so that way we could have parity with the fish. Um, were the Cajuns okay with that, or were they? Uh... Uh, the, the Cajuns were on board. They, okay. just, they just wanted to be held in the same regard as as fish and insects and other things in some cases, uh, at least to that standard. And, and so, you know, they were on board and it, it was designed to make a point. I think yeah. we were able to do that. Um, well, here at the Capitol Beach, we, we do like to get into some uh, sort of more policy wonky details. A lot of our audience are, are uh, interested in some of the details of the, the, the coast. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about some of the policies that you have or, or, or bills that you've worked on that help address some of these issues. I, I flagged uh, potentially the Warda bill that you helped lead last year. Um, you've also, I've heard you talk about the Disaster Recovery Reform Act that really both of these are do a number of things, but I think try to drive investment and resilience before a storm as opposed to after a storm. Um, I'll sort of turn it over to you to see, you know, if you want to talk about those bills or anything else, talk about some policy that you've worked on. Sure, sure. So so as you know, there's study after study that shows that for every $1 you invest in resilience activities or mitigation strategies, you get three, four, six, seven dollars and ninety-three or $11 in cost savings, depending on whose report you, you believe. Um, and, and so what we've tried to do is, is pivot from this entirely reactive strategy of the federal government whereby we spend billions of dollars after a disaster and instead try and lean in and and, and spend millions of dollars before on resiliency projects. And so we, we have passed laws, and I want to be clear, these are laws today that help to reduce the cost share for a state or a county or a parish government in the event that, um, uh, that there is a uh, disaster. Normally you pay a 75, excuse me, a 25% non-federal cost share. But if you've actually carried out mitigation strategies before your disaster, you can get a discount, you can get a 5% reduction. We have established um, this program called um, uh, Pre-Disaster Mitigation. The program was established, we have substantially increased the funds whereby um, we, we have automatic spending based upon the, the total disaster cost in the prior year to where your pre-disaster mitigation, where you're providing FEMA funds to states and counties and parishes to carry out protection and resilience projects on the front end before uh, disasters come. And so that way you can get that payoff. We have tried to knock down the walls between, for example, FEMA funds under the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program and Corps of Engineer projects, whereby previously it said that if you get funds from FEMA, you cannot use them on an authorized core project, even if there are no funds available. And we all know there's a hundred billion dollar backlog in Corps of Engineer projects. So clearly we've got to try and figure out how to pull more funds together. So we made limited progress on some of these 
housing and urban development, community development, block grant, disaster recovery funds, and knock down part of the wall there to where you could use them on core projects or FEMA projects. We knocked down the entire wall on FEMA funds to where you can use them on core projects. We just, we've got to figure out how to make sure the dollars are being spent on the highest priority projects and stop this silliness of building walls between funding sources and preventing you from building the projects with the greatest return on investment. Lastly, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have before us is the organizational structure of the Corps of Engineers. You, you have a $100 billion project backlog. There's some great people over there. And as I said, they've made progress in the last two years, but it's really difficult to believe that there's value added to having the Corps of Engineers mission, their water resources, their civil works mission within the Department of Defense. Um, I think that this is priority number 384 for the Secretary of Defense when you think about all the other things that he or she has to deal with. This needs to be priority one, two, or three for a, for a cabinet uh, level official. And so uh, we did put a provision in the law that, that requires the National Academy of Sciences to look at a different organizational structure, a different project delivery, a development delivery structure. The White House released an innovating government report where they talk about taking the core out of DOD. And um, I, have, I have come pretty, pretty biased to this concept that what we really need to do is take FEMA and take the Corps of Engineers and create an independent agency. Yeah. I don't think that, the, that Homeland Security brings value added to FEMA's mission. I don't think the Department of Defense brings value added to the Corps of Engineers' mission. So that's long-term something that we're looking at uh, and, and moving in that direction. I actually want to dive into that a bit more, but I also, the point before you made uh, about how FEMA funds can now be used for for core projects. I, I want to actually come back to that because I think for many, this is a, a new thing and, and maybe for many of our listeners who, who have, you know, or local sponsors of projects or have projects, I think it's important that they're sort of aware of this and, and the benefits that that can drop by. So if I can, I'm just going to sort of See if I understand this correctly. So if you're a, a federally authorized project, you're a local sponsor on a federally authorized project, and you're one of the you know, $100 billion worth of projects that are authorized but don't have appropriated funds, you're sitting there, your BCR isn't good enough, or for whatever reason, appropriators haven't, the OMB hasn't decided to give you money, you can now access FEMA funds through pre-disaster mitigation, so not even post-storm. Through HMGP, through, through post-storm hazard mitigation mm -hmm. grant program funds. Now, let me be clear yeah. that we knock that wall down. Mm -hmm. um, we want to knock the pre-disaster mitigation, the PDM wall okay. down, and we have partially knocked down the community development block grant disaster recovery wall. So we're, we're continuing to, to try and knock these things down. But if you have a disaster and you get hazard mitigation funds in the aftermath of a disaster from FEMA, you now are allowed under the Disaster Recovery and Reform Act, you are allowed to use those funds on a Corps of Engineer authorized project. That's, that seems really tremendous for the, as you said, $100 billion or $97 billion, whatever it is, the backlog um, of people that want their flood protection projects but haven't been able to use it. So when you, when you think about it, just a minute, I mean, you have limited federal funds. If the Corps of Engineer authorized project is the best investment for your community for resilience or recovery or what have you, why would you why would you actually obstruct or prohibit the use of these federal dollars to build a project? It simply doesn't make sense. Um, so that seems great. And if folks sort of want to know more about this or learn more about this, would you, I mean, would you recommend reaching out to their their FEMA folks, reaching out to core folks? 
what's um, the best way to sort of I think for this one probably this. reaching out to FEMA folks makes okay. the most sense but, but folks can do a little bit of research on their own it's yeah. called the Disaster Recovery Reform Act and it is section 12 I think it's 1210B, if I remember right, but I will double check. Um, you don't know the section uh, number off the top of your head. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's it's uh, it, it's 12 something B, but we'll we'll double check that and uh, and, and, and and again, I think understandable if people don't know about this bill just passed what last December. Well, it became law in October. In October, so this is still a relatively new bill. So, so great opportunity, something to learn about. Okay, let's talk a bit more about. Um, the Army Corps certainly, uh, you know, I think it's probably known that in your time as, as CPRA chair, you had frustrations with the Corps. Um, really pleased to hear you saying that you think they've made some changes. What can you share any specifics about where you think some of their cultural changes or some of the changes that you, you, you approve of? You think they're going in the right direction? Sure. Sort of I, so, color that? look, I, I just sort of big picture, I think that the Corps really lost focus. And let me say it again I've been working with the Corps of Engineers. Since, since my teenage years to some degree. We have a family land surveying uh, a consulting company and, and I worked there growing up and, and on and off for many years. And, and the core, and I don't know what happened, but around 2004 is when I saw the big change when it really seemed like they were, they were moving in a direction of just, just obstructing and, and forgetting that we should be sharing objectives in these projects. I mean, you don't have uh, states that are out there in many cases trying to do nefarious things. I mean, these are about restoration or navigation or, or beach renourishment or protection or what have you. We should be working together, not pulling one another apart. And the core, in my opinion, lost sight of the project objectives. And so, um, so, so projects weren't getting done and we were spending all sorts of money in the, in the pre-project, pre-delivery process that was not really uh, providing good return on investment to taxpayers. The core more recently, I think, has pivoted to focusing a bit more on project objectives, on regulatory objectives. What are we trying to achieve here? We have seen them uh, get kind of out of their comfort zone a little bit, looking at more innovative ways of doing projects. And look, I'll give you an example. We had a project in, in South Louisiana where um, the, the Corps of Engineers had initially estimated the project was going to be $586 million in the mid to late 90s. They came back and applied new engineering standards. They took the exact same project and the cost ballooned to $10.2 billion. And now with uh, they call the 902 uh, inflation, uh, you're, you're probably looking at closer to $12 billion. I mean, this is crazy. You're, you're never going to get that project funded in reality. And so we've been talking with the Corps of Engineers and saying, hey, let's, let's take a fresh look at this thing. We believe we have the cost down uh, to below $3 billion already, and, and I still think that's high. But look, they're willing to look at things differently. They're willing to work with partners and figure out, you know what, maybe you can do this a little bit better. For example, there's Section uh, uh, 1043, which allows for non-federal sponsors, the states and counties and parishes and water boards to be the lead on a project and the feds, the Corps would grant them the money. The Corps has become a little bit more open to that, although they did release 149 pages of guidance on that uh, provision last month, but, um, but, but they just seem to be more open to the concept and working with partners and figuring out who has the right skill sets uh, to carry out different project components or functions. And it is a major shift, and I think it's great news. Yeah, I think it's great. And I think some of the work that, that you and, and others on the various uh, committees of jurisdiction have, um, have been 
pushing the 1043, certainly the 7001 uh, study that allows communities to actually sort of get their projects forward have been have been terrific. And then I, I've been pleased to see General Semini's call to revolutionize the core, talk about risk-informed decision-making, not risk-averse decision-making. I think that's been really good. Yeah, yeah General Semini has, has been a, a, a real champion in his speeches about this this change in culture at the core, and it's been welcomed. And General Kaiser at the division, at the at the Mississippi Valley Division, who's going to be coming up here, he's another one where I think he's pushing for the culture change and really staying focused on objectives, which is one thing you'd expect the military to do: charge. Yeah. So I know I just got to note that you, you got a vote coming up, so we may have to cut this a little bit short. But I want to ask you. Two questions, one a serious question and one just sort of a, a fun question at the end. Uh, so real briefly, you're the ranking member on the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. Obviously, um, you know, you've got a, you're seeing it firsthand. Interestingly, uh, your, your chairman counterpart is, is Kathy Castor, also a Gulf Coast member. Is your Gulf Coast, your mutual Gulf Coast experience allowing you guys to work together? What, what kind of, what do you see moving forward on that committee? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll be really candid. I think that the committee was established largely by Speaker Pelosi to be more of a political or partisan type committee. Climate change is one of those uber partisan issues generally. And I think that there's been an effort to make it partisan. However, uh, something that I said, first words out of my mouth, and I'm going to continue to say it. I think we're seeing a little bit of a softening lately. Adaptation is one of those things that it, that is of no regrets. It makes all the sense in the world. One of the things that, in fact, not one of the things, the first thing that we should be doing is focusing on adaptation. You can be wherever you want to be on climate change, and it's happening, it's not happening, it's, it's human, it's not human uh, caused or, or exacerbated. We are measuring sea rise, all right? We're measuring it, uh, black and white. Uh, numbers and you have the coastal counties, parishes, and boroughs where it only represents about 10% of the nation's land area, but over 40% of the nation's population lives there. It's not an option for us to do anything other than get good at adaptation. And so this is a no regrets issue where we can be working together, Republicans and Democrats. Um, maybe Democrats are doing it because of the ecological productivity and resilience. Maybe Republicans are doing it because you're investing in strategies that save you money for disasters and help improve the resilience of your economy and your community. I don't care why people are doing it. All of us should be on board with that. So we've been pushing for um, pushing for that to be a top tier issue. I think it's good news that last year, I think we had more money invested in resiliency projects than any year um, between HUD and Corps of Engineers funds. So really excited about some of the, the resources that are being put to some of these initiatives right now. But uh, we're trying to build on some of the progress we made last year, and um, and this needs to be the area where we first cooperate. I think it's going to help us to build relationship, build trust. Then we can move on to some of these other issues where we need to be cooperating on cleaner energy solutions and protection of the environment and ensuring that we have um, uh, lower energy costs and things along those lines. I think it's a great message, whether you're on you know the, the, the red Republican coasts of Louisiana or Texas or the you know the blue coasts of New York or California. You need to address. Okay, last final question, uh, real easy or maybe really hard depending on your perspective. Um, what is your uh, favorite beach or coastal area outside of your district? I don't want to get you in trouble with your constituents, but uh, what, what, what's the place that you just, you have an emotional connection to? Yeah, so, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and give you two. Okay. So, so on the one hand, um, I, I coastal Louisiana and, and I tease my friends from Florida all the time, but I'm going to quote National Geographic, uh, not not my own quote, National Geographic. Uh, 
the Florida Everglades is a petting zoo compared to the ecological abundance in coastal Louisiana. It's such a unique environment that still take plain the wetlands, the wildlife, it just, it, it, it is like no other place that I've been before. And so I do love to go down to areas like it and just, this is just to the um, east of our district, right. so I'm, I'm staying fair. Um, going down to areas in, in lower Lafourche and lower uh, uh, Terrible Parish outside of our district, of course. Yeah. Um, in fact, Kamenata is, is one of the areas. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful coastal scene that you just don't have anywhere else. Number two, um, I spent a number of years teaching outdoor education classes, and I spent a lot of time uh, on the Lost Coast and the Olympic Peninsula out on the West Coast, and uh, just some of the the, the interface between the, the rock formations and the beach and Lost Coast climbing over the ladders up on the bluffs and everything, I just really loved some of those areas and, and really enjoyed, uh, gosh, in some cases, the weeks at a time that we spent out there uh, traversing that coast up and down. So beautiful areas out there, and I certainly could spend a, a good bit more time out there. That's great. I can't think of two more different coasts, but equally beautiful and gorgeous and, and alive, vibrant yeah, life, absolutely. people and, and, and creatures. Well, Congress and thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have to run, but I really appreciate the time you've taken. And certainly, you know, thanks for thanks for your your efforts throughout. You were a, a friend of the coast in 2018, and I think a friend of the coast is is uh, just a, a doesn't do justice to what you've done for the coast. You are certainly a champion of the coast. Well, so thank, thank you. you, thank you very much, and always enjoy the opportunity to work with y'all again. I think we share objectives here. So. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Take care. Thanks.